Hello and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Daniel Ramey. Today, we talk with Dr. Erica Wise, professor in the Department of Geography at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill and head of the Climate and Tree Ring Environmental Science Research Group. Erica's work focuses on understanding the long history of the Earth's climate and what that history can tell us about the effects of human-caused climate change. To do that, she and her colleagues analyze tree rings, ship logs, diaries, and a variety of other data sources to reconstruct annual, seasonal, and even monthly variation in local and regional climates. In today's episode, Erica will give us a fascinating look into how that work gets done and what it can tell us about the future. Stay with us. All right, Erica Wise from the wonderful University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill near my hometown of Durham, North Carolina. Welcome to Resources Radio. Thanks. Glad to be here. Yeah, we're thrilled to have you. Um, And Erica, we're going to talk about your work uh, on paleoclimate and tree rings, and I'm really looking forward to it because it's pretty different from a lot of the topics we cover on this show. But we always ask our guests how they got interested in working on environmental issues, either as a kid or later in life. So what kind of steered you into this line of work? I have always been interested in the environment and particularly weather and climate. Since pre-high school age, I don't have a great explanation for why that is. Uh, But as an 18-year-old, I went to college with the plan of majoring in earth sciences. The program I was in at the time was aimed kind of at hard rock geology. And the normal thing you had to do to graduate was a summer field geology weeks-long class and I actually had no interest in doing that. So I found out that I could do a research thesis instead, and I tracked down a paleoclimate modeler, and I ended up doing a project on how the desiccation of the Aral Sea had affected local temperature. So that not only got me started in climate, but also in doing research, which uh, had not occurred to me that someone could do as a career So uh, I worked for environmental consulting for a while after that, but I went to graduate school and I, uh, my master's was actually on how climate variability affects air quality. Um, But I was at the University of Arizona, which is this global center of tree ring research. And I eventually wandered over there and took a class and found out that tree ring research has everything I could want. It has uh, amazing field work. It has really fun lab work. It has nice people. So the rest is is history. That's so interesting. Um, yeah, it seems like such a cool topic to study. I mean, tree rings, it's like something you hear about as a kid. And then at least for me, kind of forgot about it for the rest of my life. Right. Um, and it, it's really fun for outreach too, because kids love tree rings. Yeah, that's great. Um, well, let's talk more about your research. Um as I mentioned uh, earlier, before we started taping, you know, we talk about climate change a lot on our show, but we mostly talk about it in the context of, you know, the recent past and the future. Um, we don't talk much about the sort of long history uh, of the climate. So can you give us, just like in really broad terms, like why is it important to understand those historical changes in the climate? And what are some of the ways that that information is used to inform uh, the present and the future? I'm I'm really glad you asked that question because most paleoclimate researchers, I think it's safe to say, are 
doing their work because of concerns about human-caused climate change. But I think that connection is not immediately obvious. Um, I would say there are kind of three main reasons that paleoclimate or pre-instrumental climate are so important for understanding current climate change. I'm sure there's other ones, but I'll just uh, use these three key ones that, uh, that come to mind. Um, the first is about context. So the most common climate change myth that I hear, I think, is that current warming is just part of a natural cycle. Um, and the reason we know that's not true is, is because of our paleoclimate information. So we can say global temperatures are the hottest in the past 2000 years. We can say the last time CO2 was this high was 3 million years ago. And we, we know those things because of these wonderful paleoclimate proxy archives that we have. The second reason uh, that I think paleoclimate is so important has to do with planning for the future. Uh, when we think about human-caused climate change, uh, of course, we aren't just concerned about being warmer, right? We're, we're concerned about uh, droughts and floods and changes in timing of rain and all these other secondary impacts. And uh, one way we can use our paleoclimate climate information is to ask, okay, you know, what other impacts might we expect in a warmer world based on what we've seen in the past? And then uh, the third reason has to do with climate models. So, uh, of course, we rely on our models for projections of what's to come in the future. And uh, the way that we can have confidence in our models is how well do they replicate past climate? So if we only had our instrumental data, we would only be able to test against this kind of small window of Earth's climate. But when we have our knowledge of climate over thousands of years, we can model past environments with those same climate models and make sure they can replicate uh, those past changes that we've seen. And then that gives us confidence in, in our future projections. That's great explanation. Thank you so much for that. And, and I should have asked... At the outset, the term paleoclimate, is that synonymous with pre-instrumental um, you know, research or are, are they different in some ways? Yeah, they're synonymous. Um, I think that there's different kind of categories then of paleoclimate because it's, you know, it's kind of interesting because with the tree ring records, we're interested in something we call the common era, which is really just uh, the last 2000 years or so. But then, of course, with some of our other paleoclimate records like ice cores, you know, they, they're going back much, much farther. So there's also kind of different subcategories of, of paleoclimate once you get into it. Yeah, right. Great. Um, okay, well, let's talk now about some of your current research. So you're in the in the midst of a project that's funded by the National Science Foundation that examines uh, paleoclimate across Western North America, and I, I think focused on the 19th century, but please correct me if I'm wrong about that. Um, can you Give us a little bit of background on this particular project and, and then introduce us to some of the data sources that you're using to try to reconstruct uh, the climate over this time period. Right. And so and this goes uh, into a little bit of what you just asked me about uh, paleoclimate. And mostly we think about it in terms of what we call these proxy records. So there are these natural archives of climate information uh, something out there in the environment that's recording climate information somehow. And that can be our tree rings, our corals, ice cores, all these wonderful things out there. Uh, but there is a field called historical climatology that doesn't quite fit 
into either paleoclimate or modern climatology. So historical climatologists use pre-instrumental or early instrumental human records of climate, and those can be from diaries, ship logs, harvest records. There's all sorts of sources because humans have always been interested in climate and weather, of course. Um, so I have this colleague I've known for um, probably 10 or 15 years, Dr. Carrie Mock, who's at the University of South Carolina. And he's a historical climatologist who studies Western North American climate. And uh, many years ago, we had a conversation about some particular year, I think it was some sometime in the 1840s in Utah. And he said, you know, the treating records say that was a dry year. But I have this set of diaries from people traveling through or living in that area that showed it was actually kind of a wet year because it was a very snowy spring. And that got me thinking about the ways that those two data sets, the historical records and the tree rings, could be used in a really complementary way. So in this project, we're applying that combination to the west coast of North America uh, in the mid-1800s. And that's uh, because of previous work by myself, but also others that have showed that that time period which was uh, at the end of what we call the Little Ice Age and also the beginning of the ramping up into our industrial warming period, uh, that it was a really wild period for West Coast climate. There were floods and droughts and extreme snow and rain and flipping between the two. So we think that there's really important lessons to learn from that period uh, that can hopefully inform us about extreme events in the future. Yeah, that sounds so fascinating. And I want to ask you about you know what you're finding uh, with some of, some of this research, but first one more kind of methodological question, uh, which is, you know, I'm hoping you can help us understand like in broad terms again, like what are some of the relative strengths and weaknesses of these different data sources? Like, how are tree rings good in some ways that you know diaries are not, or in diaries are good in some ways that tree rings are not? So can you just help us understand some of the you know relative merits of different types of data material? Yeah, absolutely. And and really the whole reason we started this study was because of those relative strengths and weaknesses. So, you know, trees are amazing. Um, the United States has this wealth of uh, some of the most incredible trees in the world. And the huge strengths of tree rings are that they're annual and can be precisely dated to a calendar year, which is really unique in paleoclimate records. Um and they're also really sensitive to climate, so they record climate really well. But, of course, they, they do have limitations. Uh, first, we're talking about one ring a year, so there's not a lot of room for nuance there. Um, second, each individual site is more sensitive to a certain part of climate. Maybe it's cold temperature, maybe it's drought, uh, and it also tends to be more sensitive to a particular time of year. So at any given site, it's going to be somewhat selective in the climate information that it contains. Historical records are almost the opposite in some ways. So their strength is that they are often daily climate records. And sometimes they're even hourly in the case of something like ship logs. So uh, and another thing is, you know, it's, it's kind of hard to argue with them because if someone wrote in their diary, it rained all day, uh, it probably rained all day, right? We have no reason to, to doubt that. Um, on the other hand, they do tend to be very limited in duration and also spatial coverage. 
So a ship uh, might have overwintered in a port for an entire winter, but that same ship probably won't be back the next year in the same place. Um, a, a person might keep a really careful weather diary for a couple of years, but probably not for decades. Although, I mean, there are exceptions. Some people kept them for decades, but in general, they're kind of in these little discrete blocks of time. And then uh, over space, there will be a record, you know, maybe at the coast or maybe a record from a town, but they're not always quite where you want them to be. So there's going to be kind of these spatial gaps where you're finding them. So they they kind of, these two these two sources of data information tend to, to fit together well and have these, these complementary strengths and weaknesses. That's so interesting. And one maybe follow-up question about the ship logs, which again, I know zero about. Um, were ship logs kept, you know, sort of consistently during this period? Like would every ship have a logger and um, did they have kind of common methods that they used across um, across space and, and time. And can you just talk a little bit more about that, that process? Yeah, they had, uh, these are some of the most useful records because they tend to record a couple of things. You know, one of them is temperature, but another one is uh, barometric pressure. So they were recording atmospheric pressure measurements, which are really important for understanding all sorts of weather and climate events. And so they didn't, you know, the reason these are historical records and not um, instrumental records is that they were, uh, you know, different types of instruments. And, you know, we can't say that they're equally calibrated amongst ships. But when they did record this, this data, you know, they wrote it down in these logbooks, and they tended to be very consistent over time. So again, this is a, this is a, uh, opportunity to have not just daily data, but usually, you know, multiple times a day, they were recording this climate information. So it's a it's a really interesting source of information that's also been pretty well preserved. So uh, that's also really useful. Yeah. Yeah. If we have more time, I'd love to ask you about that preservation process and, and then how one goes about finding that information. It just sounds really fascinating. Um but let's turn now to um, to maybe some results uh, of the, the work that you're doing. Can you give us an instance or an example or two of some time when these data sets differed considerably and why those differences may have arisen and just like what it tells us about uh, the climate in a certain place at a certain time? Right. So one of the exciting parts of this project is that even though we we did launch it with the intention of finding those differences and then figuring out why they occur, uh, what we've found so far is that those two data sources don't differ considerably for the most part. Um, they tend to agree quite well. Um, now, that's not true uh, every single year. There are some years that are different. So, for instance... Our historical records suggest that the winter of uh, 1848 to 1849 was very wet in California, but it appears uh, kind of average in tree room records. So one way that can happen is if the rain comes mainly in the form of extreme rain events. So a lot of rain in a short time, because that can result just in runoff across the land, and then that water is not usable by the tree. So the tree could be missing that water. 
There are other really wet years in the mid-1800s, though, that are captured by both data sources. So 1862 is, uh, if you're interested in this time period, is probably the most famous climate year. Uh, This is a year when Sacramento and a lot of the Central Valley of California were very heavily flooded. And so that's, that's recorded by both the tree rings and the historical records quite well. Uh, There's also other just kind of regional events uh, in extreme years like 1864. That was a extreme drought year uh, centered in Southern California. It devastated the cattle industry. There's people that think that that's what kind of led to the development trajectory of Southern California eventually. And that's another one where it's picked up really well by both uh, tree ring and historical records. And even kind of the spatial pattern of that drought is picked up really well by both. Now, we did pull in a third data source um, for as part of this ongoing story, uh, which is something called uh, reanalysis. And reanalysis is kind of a model data hybrid. So there's this background model running, but it brings in actual data whenever possible to kind of self-correct. So uh, when you're in recent times, it's mostly data um, with just a little bit of model. And the further back you go in time, it becomes more model and less data. So it now goes back to the 1830s. Um, but of course, in that early period, it's, it's mostly model. And you know these data are, are really valuable even up to the present time. I use them all the time in my own work. Um, But what we found was that in that early part of the record, they didn't really match up well with either the tree ring or the historical data. And that was particularly when it came to rain and snow. So the, the people who developed this product, you know, are aware that they just, they don't have anything to test against during that, that period because there aren't other data products that go back that far. So this is a one of the goals of this research is to provide these other um, climate data sources so that we can, you know, test the model and hopefully eventually improve it in the in the places where it's not getting things right. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, you know, one question that just popped into my head uh, is sort of a pedantic one, but it's it's about when to use the word weather and when to use the word climate. So like when I asked you about, you know, what was the climate like in a certain year in a certain place, is that the right word to use or should I have said weather? We generally say climate because especially with these, um, like in the case of tree rings, again, often we're talking about just a yearly record. So that we would consider more of a climate record. And even though, you know, the historical records have these uh, daily data, and they are kind of a, a weather journal. Uh, we we When we kind of are doing this research, we're more scaling it up to a matter of months or even seasons or years. So uh, we, we would normally say climate. Okay, great. Okay, so I will keep saying climate then too. <laughs> um, so, you know, th- this next question kind of goes to what you were just talking about, about different timescales. One of the outputs uh, of this project so far that I was able to take a a quick look at was a a paper that estimated precipitation patterns using tree rings, but instead of doing it at an annual level, it tried to do it at a a quarterly and I think even a monthly timescale. Can you help us understand, again, you know, for the non-expert, like, how do you do that? (laughs) And um, and what are some of the benefits that you can derive by uh, looking at those smaller timescales? And also, what are the challenges of doing it? Right. So I would say a big goal overall of my research is to try to take these really great tree ring records and see if we can make them even better. 
Um, so one uh, specific goal of this this paper that you mentioned had to do with developing subannual records. So like like we talked about, trees have these annual growth bands. So traditionally, we're getting one climate record per year. Um, but I and, and other people as well have been exploring ways to get additional information out of the tree rings. So that includes uh, measuring something called early wood and late wood separately. So those are just the light and dark part of each tree ring, if you can kind of picture the inside of a tree. Um, and also analyzing other parts of the wood, like cell size and uh, stable isotopes and density of the wood. So all these, all these kind of uh, approaches to try to dig out additional climate information. And uh, what I did in the study you mentioned was to use the power of many different tree ring sites. So this is data that's been shared by many different researchers. And in the Western US in particular, we have very high amounts of data, so high data density. And these data are from trees growing at different elevations, they're different species. So each site has a slightly different part of the climate year that they're more sensitive to and that they're recording in their rings. So by combining and recombining the different sites through statistical analysis, I was able to get uh, climate information. In this case, I was focused on precipitation on a rolling basis throughout the year. So the reason that that's important um, goes back to some of the things we were talking about earlier with the, the limitation of the treatment record. And I found that by making these seasonal and monthly records, I was able to get a clearer picture of what happened over the entire year, and particularly the ability to capture some of those extreme events and also uh, precipitation extremes that happened out of the normal season. So the ultimate goal you know, is to get a, the most accurate picture of past climate that we can. And what I found is that by using this approach, I was really able to uh, get just that, that extra little bit of information out. So especially for those kind of times of the year that trees traditionally haven't been that strong. That's so fascinating. And when you're doing that work with tree rings, are you mostly going into archives and using uh, tree rings that have been collected by others, or are you harvesting wood? Are, are you going out there and measuring data from living trees? How do you kind of physically do that? Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you asked that too, because I always, whenever uh, I talk to people and especially classes about, um, about tree ring work, usually somebody asked before I can remember to say that that we're not cutting down any trees. So I always I always forget to mention that, but we're, we're not cutting down living trees. Um, so we take, we have these just uh, small increment borers. So you, uh, it's something that foresters use to test growth in, in their managed forest, but you can uh, just drill this kind of uh, straw sized thing into a tree and take out a sample where you can see all the rings, but it's not gonna, you know, kill the tree. So that's what we use for when we're getting our own data. And for a big project like the one we were just talking about, that's really depending on other people sharing their data. So I do collect my own data and some of my own data went in there, but uh, tree ring field and lab work takes a very long time. So to be able to do a really large spatial study like that, we have to be able to, to rely on each other to share our data so we can, we can get those... Um, those points from other people and, and combine them in these useful ways. Yeah, that's really interesting. It reminds me of um, 
you know, in oil and gas, which is a world that I know a little better, you know, companies, when they're trying to assess whether they want to drill in a place, they'll take a core sample, uh, right, of a rock that's deep underground. And it sounds, you know, like a somewhat similar process, although, of course, happening at smaller scale and, and above ground. So one more question before we go to our final top of the stack uh, segment, which is, again, just kind of about how you do this work. Uh, and I, I'm really fascinated to hear more about these um, these ship logs and about you know, how you get access to them, how you examine them, where physically are they found, like how well preserved are they? Can you just talk a little bit more about working with um, with that information? Yes, absolutely. But I do have to say that this is mostly the work of my collaborator, Kerry uh, Mock. So he, but he does focus mainly on uh, the big archive centers. So there's the U.S. National Archives in Washington D.C. There's the British National Archives in London, and those British archives in particular tend to have many of those ship logs because of British naval and colonial history. So there's a there's a lot of those ship logs there. Um, he does also go to small places. So sometimes these little historical museums that are in the actual locations we're studying, like California, um, they often have some of those original diaries and things like that, that that locals have donated when they were cleaning out their attic or or something along those lines. I, I do have a tiny bit of, uh, of real experience because I went to the special collections here at UNC just last week to look at something that Carrie was interested in. Uh, we have a really good um, collection here that's really focused on Southern studies. And I was looking at a diary from a man who was from Alabama, and he had been a 49er and traveled across the country. And he kept this neat little ledger of his expenses every day and this and also a little uh, summary of the daily weather. So when I went in there, I was able to actually hold these physical objects. They were these small leather bound journals. Uh, and I took photos of the contents and sent them to carry. Uh, turns out it's a really special skill to be able to read 1800s cursive handwriting. <laughs> I can I can make a lot of it out, but it's pretty slow for me. And uh, Carrie's shown me other things where I wouldn't be able to read a word. So he has developed a very special skill to quickly read through and record what he needs from all those archives. Wow, such fascinating work. And, you know, since you're working with someone from South Carolina, uh, I have to ask you the most important question of the day, which is um, your preferred barbecue style and, and his. Do you argue about barbecue style with like mustard-based versus vinegar-based barbecue? I've been a vegetarian since I'm 19, <laughs> so I am not the person to ask. Oh, that's great. Um, thank you, Erica, so much for coming on the show. This has been just totally fascinating and um, hopefully for our listeners too, just learning about something very different from what we normally talk about on the show. Um, so now I'd invite you to share something with our audience that you've read or watched or heard that's related to the environment or not really, whatever is kind of on your mind, but just something that you think is great uh, and you think our listeners might enjoy. So just asking you to recommend what's at the top of your literal or your metaphorical reading stack. Yeah, I have uh, two books uh, that I'm going to mention that are aimed at kind of different audiences, but I feel like they're connected by a common theme. Um, and they're both books that I've read recently, and they were both published in 2021. So the first is aimed at a more general audience, and it's a book called Saving Us by Catherine Hayhoe. And then the other one is aimed more at practitioners, and it is called Getting to the Heart of Science Communication, and it's by Faith Kearns. So 
A main theme that I think connects them um, is the topic of listening and listening as a part of having effective communication with other people. So Saving Us is a book that's specifically about climate change and a lot about how difficult communication about this topic can be. And then Getting to the Heart of Science Communication is about communicating difficult science topics, uh, including climate change, but not just climate change. But both books really emphasize the idea of listening and being empathetic to whoever you're trying to communicate when you're, you know, sharing something that's really important to you. And I feel like these both are really timely books and really makes, you know, some food for thought about how we communicate about environmental issues. So I think, and they're both fun to read too. So they're, um, you know, I think really useful books for, for different groups of people. Those are great recommendations, and and so we will have links to both of those in our show notes, uh, as well, of course, to uh, to links to your research and, and the papers we've talked about today. So uh, we'd encourage listeners to check all that out, and just want to thank you one more time, Erica Weiss from the University of North Carolina. Thank you so much for coming on to Resources Radio and telling us about your work. Oh, it's been my pleasure. Thanks so much for talking to me. You've been listening to Resources Radio. Learn how to support resources for the future at rff.org support. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. Resources Radio is a podcast from Resources for the Future. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the podcast guests and may differ from those of RFF experts, its officers, or its directors. RFF does not take positions on specific legislative proposals. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson, with music by me, Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode.